I'd like for us to have a look at our text, which will be in Ecclesiastes. Have we ever read here from Ecclesiastes? I do not know. I know that I've never preached or taught directly from it. I don't think. However, there is a time for everything. So we may as well. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. This is the beginning of this book. What does it say? It says this. The whole chapter we're doing, okay? The whole chapter. The words of the preacher. I mean, it's sermon time after all, so. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And this is what he says. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun also goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All the streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been, already, in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom, or by wisdom, all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And this is a word from God, believe it or not. Feel good yet? Yes, yes, believe it or not. This is a great book by a wise man, just like Proverbs. And as a matter of fact, it is said to be the same man, only now older and looking back and talking about everything that's come to pass in his life and all that he had, all that he achieved. And he's sort of taking the measure of it, trying to figure it out. So we're going to spend some more weeks upcoming to try to get what it has for us. What kind of wisdom can, can be gleaned from a book like this? Ecclesiastes. What a book. It doesn't really read like, for example, First Kings. Because Ecclesiastes, a book like this, it's not history. Not a history book. It doesn't really read like the Psalms. I mean, it's poetic in many ways, and it's inspired a lot of songs, but 
the book itself is not a song. I mean, it's not just a poem. It doesn't really read like Isaiah, because even though it has prophetic-sounding truths in it, got kind of prophetic undertones, book like this, Ecclesiastes, it's, it's, it's not prophecy. Like, they don't list it among the prophets, do they? It's not like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, oh, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes belongs to a different category. There's kind of categories of kinds of books in the Bible. And Ecclesiastes belongs to the category called wisdom. It's a wisdom book. A book of wisdom. What is it? What does this mean? What is the purpose of wisdom literature, this kind of wisdom book? Well, you see, books of wisdom are definitely meant to teach us things. They're meant to teach us. They're meant to instruct us. But not to teach us so much just doctrine as perspective. Right? Is there doctrine in it? Yeah. Yeah, there are things that we are, that we learn from a book like this, like what's true and what's false. But it also is sort of giving shape to how you see things. It's, it's meant to kind of frame your life properly. To give you the frame that you see things through so that you can understand the whole world better. It's instruction not to make you smarter, but to make you wiser. Which, by the way, if you, if you choose wisdom and you become wiser, then I would say you are smart. It's to give you the right outlook on things and to help you avoid really dumb mistakes, of which there are so many you could make and have made, I mean, you know... <laughs> But if, you, if we had read wisdom better, if we had gotten wiser, we would have made less stupid mistakes. That's why you make less of them, you're supposed to, the older you get. Because you get wiser. And you learn from the dumb stuff you did before. And you think, I stepped in that hole six times. I think I won't step in that anymore. If I were wiser, I would have read the guy who warned me about that hole, and I never would have stepped in it in the first place. But we sometimes learn the hard way. Now, Ecclesiastes is one of the more uh, unfortunately named books or unfortunately titled books. Why is it called that? Ecclesiastes. Does that book just make you want to... that title make anybody want to just tear that thing open and start reading? You know, today, the way they title books nowadays, they put a big emphasis on, on, a, on a title that will catch people's attention. So, you know publishers and um, editors and the people who actually put books out there they choose titles carefully and a lot of times a book doesn't even get the title that the guy that wrote it wanted right I mean an author sometimes has their, their own title and the publisher or editor says nah 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 and the reason they change it is there's only one reason sales they just need it to appeal. They, they want to know what will move this thing. They don't care if it's even that good. I mean, once people get it, they bought it. Once you paid for it, I mean, whatever, you know. Maybe you like it, maybe you don't. I just need you to pay for it. And how am I going to get you to pay for it? I need a title that makes you think, I need that book. So they titled books like that. But that wasn't, that wasn't the way it was. That's, a, that's, you know, that's an element of uh, commercialism in the modern world. In the old times... Up until the modern era, books just got titles that you gave them. In fact, if you ever looked at old titles of, I mean, even like through up into the 19th century, they'd have titles of books that'd be real long. You ever seen that? Be like, 
as to the perspectives on blah blah blah, but it's like it's like a three-line title on that thing, and then the subtitle is like a paragraph. Well, that's because they weren't trying to sell it so much based on the title. They were just trying to tell you very clearly what this is. And so, you know, and, the, and, and even other things in the ancient world, just they just got a title stuck to it. Sometimes it's just the first word, the first line of it would be the title. So how did it get this weird title? Well, this book is named after the main person talking. As we saw in the first verse, this is what? The words of the preacher. Some of your translations will say the teacher because it can kind of mean more than one thing. So the Hebrew is this word kohelet. And what is kohelet? Well, in Hebrew, a, a kahal is a group, an assembly, a congregation of people. And a kohelet is the person that is addressing that group, speaking to that group. So this is like the main speaker. And and so in Hebrew, in the original Hebrew title, the book is just called Koheleth. It's just the preacher. This is what the teacher says. Main guy who's the main speaker. The, the person who addresses the assembly. And but the, it goes into Greek. It goes into the earth, that early Greek translation that was really, really influential. The Septuagint, the old LXX. They translated it. Ecclesiasticos because they said well an assembly an assembly a congregation is an ecclesia and when you read the New Testament when you read your Bible all those New Testament books that word ecclesia is in there a whole bunch do you know what it's translated as the church it's a word that means church too because the church just means a group it's literally it's those who are called out together so and in latin it's ecclesia so now see how we got that name ecclesiastes they're just trying to go from the hebrew and it just you know and then we end up with a weird a name that to the modern ear sounds very strange and doesn't make anyone want to start reading it but that's a shame because they should want to start reading it because this this kohelet this the preacher the teacher um one translation even says the philosopher says Wycliffe said, Wycliffe just said, the Ecclesiastes. The words of the Ecclesiastes. He just went to literal. Another translation says, the spokesman. Well, what does the book mean? What is it trying to do? I read that whole passage, and if you weren't familiar with it, you thought, wow. At first glance, if I don't know that book, and here, and, you know, and here I am, I read it, and it says all these things about... Yeah, you know, everything comes around, goes around, sunrise, sunset, like the old song, sunrise, sunset, sunrise, right? Fiddler on the roof. I mean, one of many, all kinds of book titles come from this book. The Sun Also Rises is a not, was a novel, right? Hemingway or something, is that, am I wrong? I forget. Well, you know... That doesn't sound... I mean, I'm looking at... At first glance, you look at the book. You may not like this book. You may not like where this is going. I just read chapter one, and so far, it sounds kind of hopeless. I don't know. Strikes me as a little bit depressing. Here's a guy telling me that uh, it's all in vain, that it's all meaningless, it's all just chasing the wind, that there's nothing new, it's all just a big old repeat over and over, and then we die. Amen. Pass the plate. I mean, that's some preacher we got here. Thanks a lot, Brother Eeyore. 
appreciate that positive, uplifting word. Ladies and gentlemen, the Reverend Debbie Downer will now bringing, be bringing the message to you this morning. Open your Bible to Ecclesiastes. You're thinking to yourself, I didn't come to church to hear a message of hopelessness. Well, of course you didn't. Of course you didn't. But now look, we only read chapter 1. This is part of a larger text. Can we do a thought experiment? I want to ask you just to think about this for a minute. Just do this thought experiment. Imagine you met and got to know, on some level, an extremely wealthy individual. Let's say this is a an exorbitantly wealthy guy in a really important position, known to all people, thought very highly of, having achieved all kinds of important impressive things over the course of many years. I mean, we're talking about a very significant, important person. And suppose you got to know that person on some level and that person confided things in you because, let's say, he knows you're a spiritual type person. That you pray, that you read, you, you know God, and he figures, you know what, you're the kind of person I can unburden myself to. i got a lot on my mind in my position, and I... I just trust you. So let's say that that person confides in you. And I want you to imagine, of all things, that he said this to you. Something like this. That he said, you know, you know, I really thought that all my money, that all my great accomplishments and achievements, I really thought that the praise of other people telling me I'm great and all the leisure that I can engage in, going all over the world, doing it all, trying it all, I tell you, I really thought that that would fulfill me. But I got to tell you, it just hasn't. It just, I just, it feels hollow. Like I've just done it all, and I'm just like, is this it? What else? I, I, I need. It's like I can't find that thing that might make my life. Oh, it's like I'm still searching for something. And if that guy said that to you, would you rebuke him for his negativity? Would you say, well, why the down face and why the, what are you talking, you got so much money, look at you, you're so important and everybody loves you, enough of that negative talk. Would that what you would do? Would you tell, you're bringing me down, man. Now, I know, en- I know enough of you well enough. Now, first of all, you'd be somewhat shocked at his, his, his perception, his, his perspective, the wisdom he had gained in life. Wouldn't you? Would you have expected him to say that? You would say, wow, I think this guy, I think God is talking to this man. I think something, the spirit is moving here. He's broken through. I think this guy is at a critical and important place in his life to be able to see this. And you would agree with him. Yes, yes, brother, you're onto something here. I do concur that these things cannot fulfill you. And then you'd run with it. And you'd run straight to the gospel with it. You'd take him directly to the foot of the cross. You'd, ta- you'd say, life, death, and new life, 
and brother, you must be born again. You'd get around. You're, I mean, that, he's just ripe for to, to hear what life's really about because he's done it all, and it's let him down. So, before we say to the writer of Ecclesiastes, what's all this negativity? Let's take a minute to recognize that a man who had more wealth than anyone on planet Earth, who, who had it all, who could afford every luxury that he, that he wanted, right? He, he owned all the land. He had all the power. and People revered him. And he liked the ladies, and the ladies liked him, and he had all those wives, and he inherited that from his old man, I suspect. You know... And yet, and yet, here he is in his old age looking back on his life. So let's cut him a little slack and recognize he's there's something he's teaching people when he says this. And he's going to get around. This isn't the end of the book. I heard a preacher years ago say that he used to rail against, you know, beatnik and hippie songs. And one day, preacher said he realized that that it was those kind of what he called searching songs that really were the only honest ones. Because he said there's a whole bunch of music out in the world that's just about trivial things, that just glorifies banal things, stupid things, things that don't even matter, they're dumb. But he said, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, be, I shouldn't be coming out against these other, this music where people are, are actually looking for something. They're trying to find... I should, I should go with that. There's something there I can... In fact, some of those songs were taken directly from this book. Yes, from this book. I remember a tune from some years back by a group called Extreme. Some of the lyrics said, Life, ambition, occupy my time. Priorities, confuse the mind. Happiness, one step behind. This inner peace I've yet to find. Anyone recognize it? Rivers flow into the sea. Yet even the sea is... There you go, not so full of me. If I'm not blind, why can't I see that a circle can't fit where a square should be? And then what did the chorus say? There's a hole in my heart that can only be filled by right? And this hole in my heart can't be filled with the things I do. You know what? That's that's a pretty biblical song. Not I was that wasn't that wasn't built as a Christian song, and that group didn't build itself as a Christian group. He's played that on radio, but man, that could be a Christian song. Ah, so you want to take that and go with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys are right. You guys are right when you say that. Or, how about this one? If you'll pardon me. I'm not going to sing it. But I'm just going to play a bar. Alright, you ready to hear? If you're old enough, you'll know. Let's see if I can still play this little ditty. Anyone? Right? Huh? Yeah, there you go. That song could have come right out of the book, of this book. Couldn't it? I close my eyes only for a moment, and the moment's gone. All my dreams pass before my eyes, a curiosity, same old song, just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see that all we are is what? Dust in the wind. 
good old hippified ecclesiastes themed searching kind of song very existential isn't it very philosophical and the fact that a bunch of people had uh, you know partaken of probably some holy herb when they heard it that doesn't negate the fact that it's it's seeking some truth it's you know if you if you jump ahead to chapter 3 of ecclesiastes it begins with the following words for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven a time to be born and a time to die, etc. Huh? Sound familiar? All you people over 50, you're already singing in your head, aren't you? All right, and for us 80s children, for us 80s children, in the greatest period of all music, I have climbed the highest mountain. I have run through the fields. I have run, I have crawled, I have scaled these city walls, but I still what? haven't found what I am looking for. I still haven't found. I mean, the writer of these words, the Koheleth, the preacher, the teacher, he is that man, that rich, powerful, successful guy. He is that guy. He had done it all. He had had it all. And he has gained the perspective to be able to say to the world, that on its own, all that stuff he had comes to nothing. Comes to nothing. It's easy to say. It's easy for me to say, why if I, if I got that, that kind of, if I got that Bezos money, if I got that, some of that Musk money, if I got that money those rich guys have, I would hold it loosely. I would give it to the Lord. I would recognize that money is not what I... I can, I can stand up here and say that, but I mean, like, you can't really test that theory. I can't test that theory. Right? It's all, it's pure theory to me, really. I hope I would. I can say I would. I can say it would be the right thing to do. But the guy that wrote this book, I mean, like, he could say, no, I actually did have that kind of money. I did have all that. I mean, if I say to someone, Hey, man, listen, you can chase all that stuff. You can try to do everything, but it's not going to fulfill you. He might say, oh, yeah, how do you know? How would you know? Solomon could say, I do know. I can speak firsthand about this. You know, sometimes we say that you have to get people lost before you can get them saved. By which we mean we're not we're not getting we're not actually getting anyone anything. They objectively are lost, and it's not and it's not that we are somehow exercising power to rescue them from that. What we mean is that we have to get them to see it. We have to get them to realize it. If somebody thinks I'm well, I'm not sick, they may never go to the doctor. Why would I? I'm fine. You have to convince them they need to, or they won't go. If you can show people that their lives are really vain without Christ, they may see more clearly what their need is. And I think that's why the old preacher-teacher began with those words, vanity of vanities. That's what it means to be vain. If someone says you're vain, that's not a compliment. Is it? Has that ever been a compliment? You're so vain. 
You probably think this sermon's about you, don't you? That's my last. That's my last song quote. I promise. Shoot, now I pr- now I have to stick to it. All right. The NIV says it like this: instead of vanity of vanities, the NIV says meaningless, meaningless. Says the teacher. Some modern translations say useless, useless. The Holman Bible says absolute futility. Common English Bible says perfectly pointless. Yeah, that gets the point across. Your life in a vacuum, in the dark, on your own, no God, no purpose, no nothing. Even if you're rich, pointless. Yeah, but I'm. Yeah, but I'm beautiful. Pointless. Yeah, but I'm talented. Pointless. But I'm so healthy. Pointless. I'm very athletic though. Pointless. See what I'm saying? What difference does it make? You're still just an amplified ape. You're still just a big accident roaming the planet, pretending you're something great, when you're nothing. You're dust. You know, what are you? What does it come to? What does it mean? You live live here for a little brief time. You're gone like everyone came before you. Unless there's some real meaning. Unless there's purpose to this life. You're meant to be here. It matters. It counts. C.S. Lewis I was looking through the screw tape letters. May put may put that to use in the near future. Around here, screw tape letters. Good to go back to it. You know, the fictional demon. Such so many insights in that little book. You know, he's he. Lewis said when he wrote it, he said, he said I really thought the book was important, even though part of me hated writing it because I had to really immerse my mind in what would it, what would the most diabolical evil figure think what would satan really think like he felt dirty (laughs) thinking like that but man he sure did a great service to us just by helping us understand the enemy is crafty he's not a big dunce and so he writes the fictional demon writes to the younger demon his nephew to try to help give him advice on how to on how to demon good you know on how to uh how to go about the business and he says it's amazing. He reminds he reminds him to not let his young victim, his young prey, this young guy who had become a Christian, to not let him think about deep and profound things. Don't let him think about that stuff. Don't let his mind go there. Don't make the mistake, he says, of trying to really debate, put things in his mind. We don't we don't use arguments, he says, we, unless they're really bad ones. But it's easier just to stay out of that realm. I don't even want him thinking in the critical ways. I don't want him asking big questions. I just want him busy. I just want him his sensual life to be fulfilled. I just want him to go from one sensual thing to the next. I just want to fill him up with chasing money, food, sex. Just give him just give him the keep him as animal-like as possible. All right? Don't let him use that frontal cortex very much. Make him non-philosophical if you can. Here's a quote from one of the letters. The first letter actually. The demon says, The trouble about argument is that it moves the whole struggle onto the enemy's own ground. He can argue too. The very he says, by the very act of arguing, you awaken the patient's reason. And once it is awake, who can foresee the possible result? Even if a particular train of thought can be twisted so as to end in our favor you will find that you have been strengthening in your patient the fatal habit of attending to universal issues and withdrawing his attention 
from the stream of immediate sense experiences. But our business is to fix his attention on the stream of immediate sense experiences and to convince him that that's what life is. Life is just every day fulfilling your most immediate needs like a child. You know, to never think about big thoughts. To never ask, what's my life's point? Don't let him do that. Don't let him do that. Yeah, but I might I might make him really depressed if I do that. Yeah, you might, but they, or you might lead him to wonder, maybe there's a God. <laughs> maybe I'm meant to be here. And that's dangerous for us, the demon is saying. So basically, summarize this. Two things we should take from this unorthodox text today. Sounds depressing on its surface, but two things we should take from it. One, it is good for us to remember and to remind ourselves of the futility of everything the world is chasing. We sh- it's good to re- just to us to remember, to keep our head about us, to remember. Everything they're going after, every experience they're trying to get, all the worldly success they're trying to, they're trying to chase down, it doesn't mean anything. It, it ends up, it ends up they, they try to grab it, it ends up going through their hands, it's sand, it's, it comes to nothing. And secondly, that it is good for the unbeliever to be struck with these kind of existential questions. It's okay for the unbeliever to have a bit of a crisis of meaning in life. That's okay. That God may use that. How many of you, if you gave your testimony this morning about your own life, you would say, I had a crisis of meaning. Thank God. God used it. No, crisis of meaning can be a good thing. So the unbeliever, it's good if they start to search, if they start to seek, if they start to ask. Because So don't try to stay in the shallows. Go ahead, get in there, go deep, roll with it. Sir Francis Bacon said, A little philosophy inclineth a man's mind to atheism, but depth in philosophy bringeth men's minds around to religion. Depth. Because the longer you're wondering and asking and wrestling with it and sort of being vexed by it, ah, the greater the odds you're going to start looking beyond this world. There was a famous journalist in the 19th century, the 20th century. He lived a long time, named Malcolm Muggeridge, British guy. Famous journalist and writer, on both, famous on both sides of the Atlantic, published a ton of stuff, traveled the world, covered major events that happened around the world, writing about all kinds of things. And most of his life, he was just, that's who he was. Important guy, respected guy, smart man, got all of his kind of glory in being this important figure. But then late in life, kind of like Solomon, he got old, he got wiser, he started to look back on it all. And late in life, he became a Christian. He wrote a book called Jesus Rediscovered. And listen to how he summarized this. Malcolm Muggeridge. Malcolm he said, quote, I may, I suppose, regard myself as a successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. And I suppose that's fame. I can very easily earn enough money to gain admission into the higher slopes of the internal Revenue, so that's success. And furnished with success and a little fame, if I cared to, I could partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. And it might happen that once in a while, something I wrote sufficiently heated for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. 
And that is a kind of fulfillment. All of that. And yet I say to you, and beg you to believe me, take all this, multiply all these triumphs by a million, add them all together, and they are nothing. They are less than nothing. Measured against one draft of that living water that Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. Wisdom, see, he gained wisdom. Without Christ, all of life is vanity. It is a chasing after the wind. 